let me pray as we come to this uh, passage. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we, we look at it. <laughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, please use me in my weakness to speak your word truthfully and faithfully as I ought. Uh, Father, as we come across difficult things, I pray that you would give us ears to hear that, hearts to receive it. I pray that we wouldn't resist it, but that we would trust you as we hear it. As we hear marvellous and wonderful things about your love and your grace, help us to rejoice over it. And as we hear the call to keep going, keep being faithful, help us to heed that call by your grace and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, will he remain faithful to Jesus in a land of idolatry? Uh, I'm sure it wasn't quite framed like that, uh, but that was the question I sensed uh, was running through my parents' mind as they helped me move from safe little country town Bort to Melbourne to go to uni uh, 16 years ago. I remember sensing this anxiety in my mum during my first week of O-Week when I was living in McLeod for La Trobe Uni. I remember getting home late some evenings of that first week and seeing mum wandering down the hall in her dressing gown, just you know, looking out for where's her Christopher. <laughs> and I can imagine what she's thinking, like, where's my boy been? What's he been doing? What temptations has he come across? And you know, the funny thing was that I actually spent most of that first week of uni um, at CU events, Christian Union events, and that was what was keeping me out late at night. And boy, did I make sure that no one at those CU events knew my mother was at home waiting for me in her dressing gown. <laughs> now, if you've grown up in a Christian family, uh, there is a sense in which we kind of like to poke fun at the uh, overreactions we sort of see in our parents. If you're not from a Christian family, just ask someone who is a Christian and they'll tell you uh, their experience. You know, I've heard a few good stories from my wife, um, but there is a... Sorry. Uh, but there is a sense in which the issue of remaining faithful to Jesus isn't really a laughing matter. It is actually quite serious. You know, I've only been around for about 34 years on this world, but in that time I've seen a number of Christians of all sorts, all ages, make the decision to abandon their devotion to Jesus simply because they love something or someone else more than him. But it's not just a problem out there with those kind of weak-willed Christians, is it? It's kind of in here too. Uh, if we're honest, most of us, I think, know that there are some things in our lives that we feel drawn to and that if left unchecked will actually draw us away completely from Jesus. And how eternally devastating that is when that happens. So how do we remain faithful in an idolatrous world where we feel that pull of idolatrous temptation? Well, I think Deuteronomy 7, the, the passage that we just heard read out, helps us to answer that question. See, this chapter reminds us that faithfulness in a, in a world, a land of idolatry, will be strengthened, I think, by three things. One, a healthy fear of God's great judgment. 
Two, a renewed appreciation of God's great love. And three, a confident trust in God's great help. So first, faithfulness in a land of idolatry is nourished. It's strengthened by a healthy fear of God's great judgment. Now, we don't often like talking about judgment, but the truth of the Bible is that we do need a healthy fear of God's judgment. See, if we don't first come to grips with the horror of the judgment we deserve as sinners, we won't see the glory of God's salvation in the gospel. And the weight of God's judgment hits us right from the outset of this passage, doesn't it? I mean, God commands Israel to unleash total judgment on all the idolatrous nations living in Canaan, which is the green area on that map. I mean, look at verses 1 and 2 in your Bibles. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hivites, Girgashites, Hamorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. And it really is total, isn't it? I mean, look at the rest of verse 2 into verse 3. They are to have no treaties, no mercy, there shall be no marriage. Nothing that will establish a tie with these people. And in case you missed it the first time, Israel, says God, I'll say it again, verse 16. You must destroy all the peoples that the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity. Now, in a society like ours that prizes the idea of tolerance and inclusion, Deuteronomy 7 kind of just comes crashing in like a bull in a china shop. I mean, many people find this command one of the biggest hurdles to belief in the God of the Bible. Uh, Richard Dawkins writes in his infamous work, The God Delusion, These words, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Oh, bit of a sting there. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. Why don't you tell us what you really think, Richard? Now, I don't believe that most people in our community buy into that really aggressive and hostile approach that Dawkins and the other New Atheists kind of take. But I do think that most people, kind of like Richard Dawkins, look in horror at the judgment that kind of God commands here. In fact, I suspect that a number of Christians with us tonight, many of you might find these verses troubling. And often we don't really know what to make of them, we're embarrassed to talk about them. In fact, when your workmate asks you tomorrow what you got up to on your weekend, can you honestly see yourself telling her about this part of your weekend? Well, I kind of mainly relaxed on Saturday morning, went out for some smashed avocado on toast on Sunday morning, went to church in the evening and heard about how God commanded the Israelites to completely annihilate every living thing that breathes from the land of Canaan, went home and watched TV, then got an early night. One of those things is not like the other. You see, we we feel uncomfortable with these uh, commands in the Bible, this part of the Bible. It makes us feel uncomfortable, it makes us a bit embarrassed, so what do we do with it? 
Well, it's probably worth thinking about a couple of things we shouldn't do. You see, we can't just avoid this part of Scripture because it's actually God's Word. And as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, this Word has something to say to us. And you see, we can't just dismiss this word on the grounds that the the New Testament version of God is different from the Old Testament version of God. No, while this command is limited to a particular time and a particular place in Israel's history, the God who gives this command has not changed. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. The God of Deuteronomy 7, if you're a Christian, is your God. So how do we process this command, knowing that it's our God's word? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the Bible repeatedly affirms that God is good and just. And look, the fact that God would send his own son into the world to die for his sinful people actually shows that, doesn't it? So that's what we need to bear in mind whenever we come to difficult texts. But I think we are able, with our human eyes, limited understanding, to see some aspects of goodness going on here. We don't always get everything, but I think there is some obvious signs of God's goodness. First, this judgment that is described here is just judgment on a wicked people. You see, the Canaanites were not innocents in the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, God is clear that it is on account of their wickedness that the Lord, your God, will drive them out from before your eyes. And Neil's going to unpack that a bit further when we come to chapter 9. So it actually demonstrates God's justice on wickedness. But second, our text is clear that God was working for the good of his people Israel in this command protecting them from his own judgment. You see, Israel was not immune from God's judgment. If Israel gets enticed into Canaanite idolatry and rejects God's word, they too will be destroyed. So God commands total destruction for the sake of Israel's total devotion and therefore protection. See, look at why Israel isn't permitted to marry or to have their children marry a Canaanite. Verse 4, For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And it comes out at the end of verse 16 too, doesn't it? Do not look at them with pity. And do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. See, for Israel to leave the door open even just a little bit to idolatry in the land is a deadly risk. And that's why they're told to break, smash, cut down and burn every idolatrous symbol in the land. The message here is don't give idolatry any oxygen to breathe. It kind of reminds me of the way... um, I used to have to scrub up pre-surgery with eye operations. I used to work uh, as an eye person, 
and he's had to assist with cataract surgery. Now, in the scrubbing up process, everything is sterile. You kind of wash your hands three times, you put on these weird gloves and gowns and masks. Everyone's kind of doing this weird dance around everyone, holding their hands up like this. Everything in that room is sterile. And why do they do this? Well, it's to stop any chance of infection and therefore disease and possibly death in some circumstances from happening. You see, why does God go to these lengths with his people in the promised land that he's giving them? To stop idolatrous sin and death in its tracks for their protection. But you see, this word is actually good for us too because it teaches us to have a healthy fear of God's judgment. This word actually reminds us how seriously God takes sin and idolatry. And in one sense, that the total judgment we see here is kind of like a sobering foreshadow of that final judgment that is to come, that Jesus actually speaks a lot about. That will happen when Christ returns and when those who have rejected God will be swept away into his eternal judgment. Now, that's hard to hear. It's hard to wrestle with these concepts, but it's actually a merciful reminder to us that we cannot live life on our terms, rejecting God, and be okay. We cannot leave the door open to sin and temptation and think that things are just going to work out great. But I suspect this is often what we do think. You see, we often think that the God I know in Jesus, though, well, he's loving. He's not judgmental. He's kind of like our buddy. Wink and a nod, things will be fine. You see, this version of, of our Lord looks at, say, our sexual sin and simply says, oh, All right, I get it. Just don't go crazy. See, this version of our Lord looks at our our bitterness and our unforgiveness and says, man, I wouldn't forgive that dude either. This version of our Lord looks at the way we kind of are fine lying on our tax return or to our, our boss and says, that's okay, don't sweat it. This version of our Lord is a lie. You see, the God of Deuteronomy 7 is the same God revealed to us in Jesus. And the real Jesus calls us to let a passage like this sink in. The real Jesus is telling us, actually, through this word, to cultivate a healthy fear of judgment. The real Jesus says, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. Jesus' words. You see, like the message of Deuteronomy 7, the real Jesus is actually also saying to have a healthy fear of God's judgment. 
He's saying don't let sin get a foothold in your life. You can't have an idol and God at the same time. Don't think you can live life on your terms, doing what you please, and think things will be fine. Hell is real. The final judgment is coming, and I don't want you to be there. Healthy fear of God's judgment. But second, faithfulness in the land of idolatry is strengthened and nourished by an appreciation of God's great love for us. From his great judgment, now to his great love. And you see, the more we appreciate the God we belong to as Christians, the less we'll want to leave him. And my hope as we we think about this stuff, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is that you'll see the glory of what it is to belong to him in these verses. Now, I think we get this at some level. The more we, we appreciate someone, the less we want to leave them. Think about like someone you may have had a big crush on. You only had eyes for them. You can't stop thinking about them. You're crazy for them. You think they're the bee's knees. No one else stands a chance with you because your heart is gone for this person. Now, in human relationships, I'm sorry to tell you, but we eventually come to see that that person we once were wild about is actually much more like ourselves than we thought, deeply flawed, sinful, but it's not the case with God. You see, God is not flawed. He remains perfect, and we need to have the eyes to see how awesome it is to belong to him. Now, I think Moses highlights three awesome aspects of belonging to God that if we let sink in, will help us in our pursuit to be faithful. Awesome privilege, awesome grace, awesome promise. Three awesome things. Let's have a look at the awesome privilege. First, Moses lets Israel know that they are a people who have been given an awesome privilege. And you see that in verse 6. For you are a holy a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Israel, you're a holy people, set apart for God, chosen people, treasured possession. You see, what an amazing privilege it is for the holy and living God to say you are his treasured possession. But here's the thing, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, you've been given that privilege. See, look at how the Apostle Peter uses this verse to describe Christians in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And my daughter, my five-year-old daughter, Camille, she has a number of toys. Some of them are really cool too, really awesome Sylvanian house, if you know what they are, um, some cool Barbies, some other cool Shopkins. Um, she's got a lot of different things. Lots of different things to choose from when it comes playtime. But of all her toys, Camille has set aside what she calls her precious things. 
Now, these are her most treasured toys. They must be kept safe at all times. They must not fall into the hands of her little sister. They must not be moved. Now, normally, something like this wouldn't really capture my attention. It's just kids doing their thing. But what gets me is what Cammy has chosen to make her precious things. You see, of all the toys she has, this is what constitutes her precious things. Some wind-up chatter teeth, a twisted-up dodgy bracelet, and what's now a broken unicorn slap band. Now, make no mistake, this stuff is cheap plastic. But you see, to Cammy, they are her precious things. But, but why these and not some other things? Some better working cheap plastic? Because that's what she's decided. Why has God decided to take you and make you one of his precious things? Because that's what he's decided. Because he is a God of awesome grace. And look at how Moses explains this to Israel in verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were like the cheap plastic. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If it were not for God's electing grace, Israel could have easily just been another name on the list of verse 1. Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Israelites. You see, without God choosing them, saving them, they're just another tribe of sinners. Israel is being told to say here, there but for the grace of God, Go we. Israel, God didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. It wasn't because you were the best looking or the smartest. God's election of you has nothing to do with you, Israel, and everything to do with him. God is the one who was faithful to his covenant promises. God is the one who simply chooses to put his love on you. I love you simply because I've chosen to love you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been caught up in this grace as well. Through Jesus, God continues to be faithful to his promises to Abraham to bless the world. See, in our hearts, we are sinners. We're just another tribe of sinful people. We're cheap plastic, if I can use, extend that metaphor. We've got hearts like the Canaanites. We're rebellious to God. We deserve death. Yet God chooses us. He took our dead heart and he makes it alive again. He gives us eyes to see the wonder of Christ's death for our sins and resurrection to life so that we could call on him and be saved. 
2 Timothy 1.9 says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Cheap plastic, now a saved precious thing. Awesome privilege, awesome grace. But it actually gets better because there is an awesome promise still to come. Now, for Israel in Deuteronomy 7, this promise comes in the form of the magnificent blessings that they would experience in the promised land if they were careful to obey God's law, verse 11. Now, you might remember the description of the promised land we heard last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 11, and you might remember it read kind of like a really awesome holiday destination. Flourishing cities, fully furnished houses, bountiful vineyards and olive groves. But I just want you to notice the way that Moses ramps it up here when he starts talking about the promised land. You see, it doesn't just read like an exclusive holiday destination anymore, does it? It goes well beyond that. Now we're seeing some of our greatest human longings fulfilled in the promised land. Did you notice that? See, if Israel keeps trusting God in the promised land, they'll know that the, they'll know the deep love of God that every heart needs to know, verse 12. They'll be a people who won't ever know that unspeakable human grief of childlessness. Did you see that in verse 13? Because God will bless the fruit of their womb. Or they won't know hunger because the land and their livestock will be exploding with produce. Verse 13 again. And that, that sickness and those weird skin diseases that they perhaps once knew back in Egypt will be a distant memory. Verse 15. They'll be healthy. Israel, remember this awesome promise and reject seeking blessings from other gods. You have it all with the Lord. And you see, isn't that true for us? In the gospel, aren't we promised an even greater land of future blessings than what we see here? A blessing that isn't tainted by our sin or our inability to keep God's law like Israel, but that's actually kept secure and eternal because of Christ's faithfulness. Isn't heaven the awesome promise that we are to set our eyes on? An eternity where we will not know the grief of this world anymore. We will experience an eternal blessing that goes well beyond verses 12 to 15 here. I mean, this is how Revelation 21 describes it. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, the way to kill an idol is to set it before the glory of Christ and his great love for us. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher in the early days of the American colonies, had a simple prayer for his life and his ministry. I think I may have uh, given this to you on the camp last year. But it was this, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. 
You see, Edwards wanted to go through life with God's awesome promise always before him. And he wanted that for the people of the colonies too. He wanted them to look beyond the kind of temporal idols that they were surrounded by of work, pleasure, finance. He wanted them to look beyond them and gaze into the expanse of an eternity with their great God. You see, if we're going to remain faithful in a land of idolatry, we kind of need to learn to do some of this. We need to pray, Lord, help me see beyond the instant gratification to my eternal satisfaction. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Help me see beyond the pain of my illness, the tears of my suffering, the struggle with my sin to an eternity free of pain, free of tears, free of failure. Lord, stop me seeking the blessed life from anything or anyone but you. Lord, stamp the awesome privilege you give me. Stamp the awesome grace you give me, the awesome eternal promise you give me on my eyeballs. That I may be so captivated by your love for me in Jesus that I would rather die than abandon you. Uh, Tim Keller writes in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, this, and I think it's helpful. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit God. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. We have just been given a great picture of the love of God that we now know in Jesus. Awesome privilege, awesome grace, awesome promise. So number one, healthy fear of God's great judgment. Number two, appreciation of God's great love. Number three, confident trust in God's great help. So a faithfulness in a land of idolatry is strengthened by a confident trust in God's great help. And you see, God does help us in the battle to be faithful. I think that's the point of verses 17 to 26. And I'm sure most of you know, if you're Christian, that the fight for faithfulness is a tough one. We're often overwhelmed by temptation. We're often left feeling disappointed with ourselves and how much our idols have us hooked. Now, we're left thinking, man, I'm just no match for pornography. I'm no match for the pull of my career. I can't stop working despite what it's doing to my relationship with Jesus and my church family. I'm no match for my obsession to Netflix. My mind is just consumed. All I want to do and watch is TV. All I want to know about is what's happening in this series. You see, the fight for faithfulness is tough. That's why we need to know God actually fights for us in the battle. And that's what we see here, isn't it, at the end of our chapter. When Israel arrives in the promised land, they will feel overwhelmed. They will feel scared. They will be saying, we are no match for this enemy before us. See, look at verse 17. 
You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? I imagine we've said the same thing about a couple of our idols. How can we drive them out? But you see, notice what Moses doesn't say to Israel at this point. He doesn't say, well, come on, guys. Have a bit of faith in yourself. Eyes forward, keep going. Now, it's not faith in self, is it? It's faith in God here. And it's not look forward, keep going. It's actually look back, then keep going. Did you notice that? Look back and remember how God has fought for you in the past. Remember what he's done for you in your salvation. See what he says in verse 18? Do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moses is saying, Israel, you can trust that God will bring you victory. You don't need to feel overwhelmed. You just need to trust him and do what he says. I mean, look at verse 21. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. God fights for his people. And in one sense, God's kind of thought of everything, hasn't he? I mean, God's even taking the wild animal population of Canaan into consideration. Did you notice that? Verse 22, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. I mean, would you have thought about that? I don't think I would have. And the Israelites would have been getting torn to pieces by all sorts of animals, I assume. But you see, when you love someone and you're committed to them, well, you make every effort to think of everything. You go the extra mile for them. It will be little by little, but God is promising Israel that the names of her enemies will be wiped out from under heaven, verse 24. It's like God is saying to Israel, I've got you covered in this fight. All you need to do is trust me, do what I say. But did you notice that although God will fight for his people and achieve the victory, he actually calls his people to the fight? You see, Israel's not to just sit back amidst all of this. They're called to do battle against their enemies and destroy them. They're called to destroy the images of their gods, verse 25. They are called to guard their hearts against covetousness by regarding that Canaanite silver and gold as vile and destroying it. Verse 26, they are called to fight. And you see, they can fight because now they know God is really fighting for them. And this is a good reminder for us as followers of Jesus, we belong to a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one like Israel. So we're not called to fight idolatrous people, but we do fight idolatrous temptations that wage war on us spiritually. In fact, Jesus will actually tell us that we're to love our enemies now, but we are always fighting against sin. 
And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, like the Israelites, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, this is a spiritual battle we're in. And like Israel, we are looking to our Lord for help. Be strong in the Lord. Like Israel, we are looking back at our salvation where Jesus showed his mighty power in defeating, defeating Satan and sin and death through his death and resurrection. If Jesus was prepared to die for us, he's not about to abandon us in the daily attacks we face from our defeated enemy, Satan. We can confidently trust him to help us in the fight for faithfulness. Just in closing, uh, John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a factory of idols. And I think that's a kind of a, a good little saying, because as sinners, we do actually have the unique ability to take something, even something good, and shape and fashion it in our heart to make another idol, something that we worship. And I've actually been reflecting on how true this has been, even in my life this year. See, oh, we'll just stay with Calvin. Um, we made the call uh, this year to increase our financial giving as a family now that I am no longer a college student. I've been a college student for the past five years. And so we thought with a bit of increase in financial resources, we'll give some more. But I'll tell you what, my heart did not take that decision easily. Now, you might think that five years at college would make me used to living on love and fresh air. But no, actually. With a bit more money came a newly forged idol. And I could actually feel myself longing to keep that and not give it. You see, I didn't just see money, a bit more money. I actually saw the extra holidays it promised, the kind of lunches out I could now afford, a bit of extra security for my family. What blessings. And it's weird because sometimes I would actually sit down, I would write out my to-do list for the day, I like to do that and cross things off, and I would actually have written a just giving. But then some days I would look at it, and that was the one thing that wasn't crossed off. Why could I not cross that off? How was I not dealing with this idol? Because idols are like that, aren't they? They ensnare us, as Moses says. Now, maybe you're here tonight and you're 
you feel like you're in a bit of a similar trap with something. Might be money, might be something else. Where you feel like you need the spiritual jaws of life to pry it away from you. I mean, I certainly felt like that. And by God's grace, he did help me to actually let that go. But it wasn't without a heart struggle. And as I've been reflecting on the passage this week, I kind of wish I had preached on it a few months ago because it would have come in really handy for me in the middle of that struggle. But I'm sure it's going to continue to do me good with all the other struggles. You see, in the middle of that struggle, I kind of needed to have that element of healthy fear, didn't I? You see, I don't want to establish a precedent in my life and ministry where I'm prepared to say to the living and holy God, you can have all this, but not this. What a terrifying road to actually walk down. But at the same time, I need to to be struck by the great love of Jesus, how good it is to belong to him in the middle of it all. You see, he's the one who gives me so much. He bestows on me such a great privilege, a great grace, a great promise. Another holiday, a few extra lunches, they pale in comparison. But at one level, above all, I needed Jesus' help. Because in that moment, and actually in every moment, I remain a weak-willed sinner. Cheap plastic that has been loved by God and can cry out to him for help now. Now maybe you're struggling to remain faithful to Jesus tonight. Well, let me encourage you from Deuteronomy chapter 7 to keep cultivating a healthy fear of God's great judgment, a renewed appreciation of God's great love, and a confident trust in God's great help in the battle. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, who loves us, and is always working for our good. Father, I pray that we would let this word sink deeply into our hearts tonight. I pray that we would be struck by your awesome judgment and that we would seek refuge in the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be struck by your amazing love for us so that we would never leave you for anything or anyone else. And I pray above all, Lord, that you would be gracious to us and help us remain steadfast and faithful to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.